0: Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.
1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Fast Company's design editor, Linda Tischler, about the status of American design, about why the word design turns off many business people, but also about how services like Kickstarter have shifted the terrain for designers.
2: That's always been design's challenge, is its inability to quantify what it brings to the table. And I think these new business models allows you to quantify.
1: Here's Debbie Millman.
0: Here are some recent headlines from the design section of Fast Company's website Todd Bracker turns a musical algorithm into a carpet pattern. And, being a desk jockey makes you sick. Design to the rescue. Here's another. Once returned, a toothbrush lives on as a picnic table. Don't you want to read them all? Well, they were all posted by Linda Tischler, who writes with great aplomb for Fast Company about the intersection of design and business. Her monthly column for Fast Company is called Big Bang Design, and she edits the magazine's annual Masters of Design issue, which we're going to talk about at length today. Welcome to Design Matters, Linda. Thanks, Debbie. Great to be here. So I read on Huffington Post that your New Year's resolutions tend toward the prosaic. This past year, for example, they were to hit the gym, call your mom more often, and clean out the 12,467 moldy emails (laughs) clogging your inbox. Oh, Lord. And I wanted to ask you, really? 12,467?
2: Well, you know, just between you, me, and my sysadmin, it's probably worse than that now. It's It's sort of my hive brain so that, you know, I can dip in there and find addresses and story pitches. And, you know, I've been at Fast Company for 11 years, and it's like having a house for 11 years. You know, those magazines pile up and the unread mail, and that's really what my inbox is like.
0: So you also wrote that one of your resolutions was to redesign your life. And you described your life as a hamster habit trail, a juggling act, a pressure cooker, a stopwatch, and my favorite, a taffy pull. And so from a cultural perspective, I'd like to get your perspective on why busy is such a big topic right now.
2: I think, for one thing, certainly in my industry, an industry under siege, We're all being asked to do a lot more with a lot fewer resources. So, for example, when I joined Fast Company, at the time, actually, I joined as the web editor way back in 2000, right before the uh, dot-com bubble totally imploded. And I migrated from there to the magazine. In the past, we sort of had discrete functions. You know, I was the web editor or I wrote for the magazine. and, And we weren't always being pulled to do you know, both things at once. Now my job responsibilities include writing for the magazine, putting up this column, you know, once a month in the magazine, at least three or four times a month on the web because somebody happily sold advertising against it. You know, marketing events, Guest appearances at conferences, a year-long job of creating this design issue, contributing to other sort of franchise projects that we have at the magazine, most innovative companies, most creative people, you know, they all have lists attached to them, top 10 architectural firms, top 10 design firms. And it's a constant battle to just keep up with all of the demands because – we don't have that many people. It's a relatively small staff, and so we're being asked to uh, to fill a lot more functions. So have you
0: managed to figure out a way to redesign your life since you wrote the piece?
2: Well, actually, right now, I've made it slightly, well, actually, a lot more complicated because... Because right you've be taken I, on something else? <laughs> I have. Technically, right now, I'm on book leave, but oh. I, that means I'm supposed to scale back my fast company responsibilities, But partly because a lot of them generate advertising revenue, they haven't really wanted me to go away for good. And so now I've added producing a 50,000-word manuscript by March 1st to my to-do list So I haven't been sleeping very well lately because at 3.30 in the morning, I wake up thinking like, oh, my God, what's my column going to be for the December-January issue? And besides which, if I don't do 2,000 words a week for this book, I'll never make it. So I'm hyperventilating a lot these days. So you're really
0: flying in the face of your resolutions, let's face it. (laughs) I've
2: failed miserably. And I'm not calling my mother as often as I promised to either. that when you have to work And as far (laughs) as like the email cleaning out thing, forget it. Okay. Well, tell us about your book. It's a book based on a, um, a cover story I did two years ago with David Butler from Coca-Cola. It's about essentially behind the scenes at Coke and their design strategy. Coke has never allowed anybody within the company to sort of reveal what goes on back there. And he, frankly, because the uh, the CEO and the rest of the company seem to to like that story and they have a lot of faith in David, they're allowing us to do this book. We actually did
0: some work with David for a book that we're doing for this branding program that I am involved in. And we were able to get quite a lot of work from the archives. Mm. And so have you been able to go through the archives yet? I
2: did go through the archives with Phil Mooney, who's their archivist. And it's just Astonishing. I can only fantasize what that must look oh, like. Oh my God. It's like, you know, the fact that Coke made Santa Claus look like he does. You know, CeeLo Green's jacket from, you know, the Coke commercials. Uh, you know, things left over from Raymond Lowy. I mean, it's just really unbelievable. Now, that is. A very
0: interesting bit of information that you've provided because our editor was unable to verify whether or not Coca-Cola really did invent the way Santa Claus looks. And we had heard that from Grant McCracken, the great cultural right. anthropologist. Absolutely. But he was unable – Our my editor was unable to verify this information. And because Grant said it's true – we felt that that was verification enough. And now you're and telling there you us. Go,
2: another witness.
0: Yes. Yeah, so isn't that amazing that Coca-Cola actually invented the way that we view the modern Santa Claus, the icon of Christmas, was invented by a soft drink
2: brand. It's, it's really remarkable not to mention, you know, the look and feel of polar bears drinking soda. Right. So the important, you know, cultural icons of our time.
0: So, Linda, how does that
2: happen? How does that happen that a fast-moving consumer
0: good, a soft drink, a mass-marketed bottled soft drink, has the power to create the visual language of a culture?
2: Well, you have to understand Coke, I mean, it's 125 years old. Certainly for its first 115, it was really all about scale. So, you know, just the power of that company in so many countries and their ability to get their message out in such a provocative way has really been the way that they've managed their design operation and the, how they run their business that's changing now because scale alone is not going to right. to be the thing that will take you to the next great leap and so that's what they're trying to to reinvent inside coca-cola and a lo- and the book will deal a lot with that pivot of understanding that scale is not enough that it's it's the connectivity it's the systems it's the shared value component that really is going to have to be the thing that will drive the company in the future
0: Coca-Cola seems to have reversed their trajectory. They seem to have, from the, I would say, the 80s into the 90s, stumbled a bit, probably from New Coke forward to, I would say, the early to Mm mid-90s. But it seems like in the last decade, particularly since David's joined the organization, that they have a much different sense of buzz about them with the vending machines that they're doing, right. with the happiness truck. I mean, there seems to be a real a real sea change. What do you attribute that to?
2: I think, frankly, David's had a lot to do with that. Certainly, there's a big design operation within Coca-Cola. He, you know, he supervises about 300 different agencies. So he would be the last person to say that he's the, you know, the genius behind all of oh, these yeah, he's things. Given he's given Moira Cullen quite uh, a lot of credit absolutely. as well. And, and Mark Mathieu before him. I mean, there were some big thinkers who preceded him. David's gift is really understanding the systems application of all of these things. So, you know, he comes from sapient. He comes from having done a lot of things with the Olympics, where you really need to understand systems in a big way. And that's really the thing that he's brought and hammered through the organization, that it's not just a redesign for the Minute made carton. It has to work across all of those different juice brands. So, you know, he's trying to figure out how you can make the most with the least, how you you can scale something so that it it has a bigger impact than just a bunch of one-offs. So you're the senior
0: editor at Fast Company. I'm one of. One of the senior editors at Fast Company. And you really are known in in our design and branding industry for being the sort of steward of our causes. Prior to that, you were the editor at Boston Magazine, uh, where you developed the New England Design Awards, and you also launched the magazine's special Boston Home section. So I have two questions for you. Why magazines and why design
2: for those magazines? I grew up with a mother who was a magazine junkie. I mean, she'll still tell you about the time when she was first married and sent my father out to get her a magazine. I mean, she must have been 20 years old. She married very young. And he came back with Ladies Home Journal. And she was sort of horrified because, I don't know, I guess she expected like the Cosmo of her day or something. And instead, (laughs) it's like Ladies Home Journal. Oh, my God, I'm an old married woman. But my house growing up was just littered and still is, frankly, with magazines. And I got hooked. And I loved magazines. I loved the look and feel of magazines. I loved the writing in magazines. I loved everything about them. And I grew up wanting to be a, a magazine writer and editor. You know, I was also very interested in art and design. I mean, we didn't call it design back then; we called it art. And you know, as a as a middle schooler, won a, a sort of scholarship to a Carnegie Mellon's art school for kids because I grew up in Pittsburgh, and and really had a very strong bent toward toward art as a potential career. My elementary and high school art teachers were hoping that's the the path that I would take. When I got to college, I sort of had to pick between the two and ended up picking words over images, partly because I think I felt a little more confident in my ability to write than my ability to design. But that passion never left I'm still taking courses, you know, Monday nights at MoMA. I'm taking a course on de Kooning. So, you know, I'm still there mucking around in the studios trying to, you know, satisfy that leftover hidden desire. You know, writing about design is as close as I could get to sort of melding those two disparate passions of mine. And frankly, it's a whole lot better than writing about enterprise software.
0: (laughs) Well, you've been at Fast Company for quite some time and have really... Elevated design to a place at the table as designers seem to always ask for. And what's interesting about that seat at the table is you actually have something to say at the table. I, I often ask designers that want that seat at the table, well, what are you going to say when you get to the seat? And you are actually able to not only have and hold conversations, but lead the conversation. And for that, I think the
2: entire design industry is quite grateful. How did you get the job at Fast Company in the first place? It was a lucky confluence of events. I had been at Boston Magazine where, you know, I had First managed to nail that magazine job that I was looking for after working in newspapers left there to go this was at the you know beginning of the dot com craze left to go to uh, microsoft 's sidewalk dot com in Boston, where I was the arts and music producer. I earned my first ship it award at Microsoft. I'm very proud of this piece of, you know, ugly piece of lucite sort of stuck into some crappy sort of thing that looks like a rock.
0: Um. <laughs> I love that you're describing what it looks like. <laughs>
2: you know, one of my proud moments. Um, <laughs> I could barely do email at that point, And here I am now with 14,000 emails in my inbox. Um, but oh, it was so raised a thousand <laughs> plus, <so> I see. <laughs> well, listen, we've been talking for what, half hour? It's probably up a thousand. You know, at that point, it was sink or swim, because I came from a magazine where we were literally correcting proofs by hand into Microsoft launching a product in two months. And I had to learn tech skills at a moment's notice because I was launching a website. It was terrifying as hell, but I managed to make it through. And And suddenly there I was in 2000 with a combination of writing skills and tech skills, which at the time was as a, a kind of a rare credential. Absolutely. After Microsoft sold off Sidewalk to CitySearch, When CitySearch took over, it was clear that they were going to downscale the whole operation and make it sort of sidewalk light. And I said, "Okay, I'm I'm out of here. And got an offer from a company called CMGI, which was an Internet incubator at the time that seemed like it was really hot. It was the guy who ran it was on the cover of Business Week, you know, Internet Kuretsu. This is the next big guru. So I thought, wow, you know, a journalist who could actually like get stock options and make some money. And so I grabbed it. I wasn't there for more than half an hour before I realized I had made a horrible mistake. How did you know that? I walked in. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: was it ugly? Uh, was it? <laughs> I was
2: in a conference room with a bunch of much younger people whom I was supposed to supervise, uh, you know, with our, our monitors lined up, cranking away. And, you know, it was supposed to be like a news aggregator. They said it was content-based. But on Super Tuesday, whenever I asked the operations guy to please run our Reuters feed a few extra times because the news was happening fast. He said no, they were taking the feed down for like server maintenance that day, and so we wouldn't have on any Super news Tuesday. On Super Tuesday, well timed, yes, well timed. And at that point, I it became very clear that that was not the place for me. So I spent a lot of time at that point trying to get out. I had a variety of back ailments, which required me to go from North Andover, Massachusetts, into Boston, you know, to see my doctor. Ah, uh, and the that's doctor, yes, the, the doctor. Proverb. Fortunately, one of the news feeds that we were tapped into was Fast Companies, and I really liked the content that I was seeing come across. And so I said, okay, you know, these are my peeps. And I managed to wangle an introduction to somebody there. And unfortunately, at the time, they required like four interviews. So I really had back bad, problems. Bad back. Very, <laughs> back. very bad back. And I know my, all of my, you know, young kids that who were reporting to me probably thought, well, that's what happens when you get to be like an old lady like her. You know, you have very serious health problems. So I managed to convince Fancy Company to take me because they needed somebody to run their website. And so it was a ha-ha, you know, somebody who has magazine chops but can understand HTML. Yeah. So that was really my way in, and, uh, and I ran that for several years before migrating back to the magazine.
0: Now, was the magazine always so focused on design? Did it always
2: respect design in the way it does now? Design was always one of its pillars, but we have definitely grown it a lot in, say, the last five or six years. As we've sort of narrowed the focus of the magazine down to fewer things, we write about technology, obviously. We write about design. We write about leadership. We write about sort of creative industries and uh, economics, which is our nod to sort of economics and uh, uh, sustainability. So if it's October in New York, that means that
0: several annual events are occurring. There is the Cooper Hewitt National Design Awards. It's the time that AIGA usually has their big conference. And it is the Fast Company Masters of Design issue, which people wait for with bated breath. And for the past several years, you've been responsible for the magazine's issue, the right. Masters of Design issue, which celebrates people in the forefront of design thinking. How would you describe the Masters of Design issue?
2: I mean, it really is meant to celebrate design. This is, you know, you're not going to find sort of a takedown, you know, bad logo story in a design issue. The design, <laughs> issue. No, the oh, design blogs uh, do that right, and well yeah, enough. That's, that's enough. <laughs> Although it's not that this issue is just slavishly, you know, self-promotional or design promotional, I, I I hope that it has journalistic integrity as well, that you know we're willing to call out some of the things that don't work. And for example, this year with this essay that I did introducing the uh, the issue, which is about American design, there's a lot in it that isn't necessarily flattering to american design. we We were careful to show American design shortcomings as well as where it's strong.
0: Well, actually one of my favorite lines in the entire issue was is when you quoted um Northwestern University's Walter Herbst who oh. states that American designers he believes that American designers have a bad case of spilkis, which is Yiddish for nervous energy and or ants in your pants. I was really I, I, I had a laugh out
2: loud moment reading. Well, that. I had a bet with Walter that I could actually get that into the issue. Uh-huh. And whenever he you know, when I when it was when it finally shipped, I said, Walter you know, keep an eye out. I did it, not only, <laughs> but it's also now the
0: first time we've ever actually used the word on design matters this as is well right. um, but let's talk a little bit more about the issue. Why did you choose to focus so much on American design in this particular? Well, essentially. Year.
2: You know, magazine editing is a form of pattern recognition, particularly this issue. You know, we're always looking for what are the trends. For a year, I've been watching and and thinking about the idea of American design and where it stands against other cultures and whether it's up, whether it's down, whether it's, you know, succeeding, failing. Really, it started more than a year ago for me at the IDEA, the judging event. And I was in Detroit actually Dearborn, doing a story on the IDEA judging. And and we did a lot of filming, a lot of videos with the jurors, which had never been done before, um, talking about the, the process and what they were seeing in terms of trends and what was good, what was bad. At the end of that, I had a, a longer interview, and you can find it on the site, with John Barrett from Teague, who is head of the jury. And what had happened was that they had invited Objeto Brazil in as part of that competition. And so there were Brazilian entries as well as American entries. Uh, well, they were really from all over because there were a lot of Asian ones as well. But um, in the course of our sort of wrap-up interview with John, we started talking about the differences between the entries from Brazil and the ones from the United States. And the contrast was so clear. The Brazilian things were colorful and and sort of you could have this sense of the hand in it they were kind of craftsy they were exuberant and expressive and the american entries which frankly featured a lot of technology obviously a lot of it influenced by apple were kind of cool and minimalist and techy and you know focused a lot on user interface and and sort of digital applications And we really started comparing and contrasting those things. So I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder, you know, if you could really make a case for a design aesthetic, an American design aesthetic. Obviously, that presents certain problems, which we grapple with in the essay, such as the fact that 82% or something of American designers are born somewhere else. And how do you deal with that? But, you know, I started seeing this, this theme. And ABC World News Tonight did a big thing about you know made in America products, and if you cleared everything out of somebody's house, what would be left? And there was a salt shaker or something, you know it. And then I from like
0: 1945, right? Exactly.
2: <laughs> um, you know, and one night I'm watching 2020, and they do a big thing on on Michael Kors and and talk about his American design aesthetic and and how it's kind of sleek and and pragmatic and good for women, whether they're, you know, plus sizes or little petites. So, you know, I'm thinking about that. And of course, I was at that point Kind of rift and started thinking about oh wedding gowns you know think of Carolyn Bessette Kennedy's dress and how the Narciso Rodriguez and how beautiful and sleek it was think of you know Princess Diana's dress and how ridiculous it was or and, even Kate Middleton not that it was
0: that it was ridiculous but it, it was so different it in was the style. so
2: different and think of you know Caroline Kennedy's dress or Chelsea Clinton's dress and and I started just thinking about wedding dresses because I'm a girl and I think about these things and and you know those crazy hats that the Brits had on whenever they went to the wedding. You know, the toilet seat hat on Princess <laughs> Beatrice. It's like what American would show up at a wedding with something like that on her head? Other than Cher? I uh, can't that, think of anyone. I can't think of well, anyone. Or maybe Lady Gaga. Uh, maybe, oh, yes. <laughs> Lady Gaga is channeling her inner, you know, Brit. Um, so, I, you know, it, it was a fun topic. And I, I thought there's really something there. And not only that, if you couple that with the real... Firm end that's going on in American design from new business models like Kickstarter to the extraordinary progress we've made in sort of the digital end user interface or experience design or service design. All those things that, that people who aren't familiar with what a big tent design is don't think of as design. You know, we think about design in terms of a chair. But there's so much going on, and Americans really are leading the fray on that. And I thought that was something really to celebrate, particularly at a time whenever the country seems to be so depressed and and gloomy about our future. Here really was something to celebrate where we really are doing great stuff. And potentially, since this is obviously a magazine about business as well as design, you know, it could show a way out of our doldrums if we could really harness that. Well, one of my favorite
0: stories in the issue was about Scott Wilson, yes, uh, who created a watch band for an Apple device that has actually been so popular. I believe that Apple is either thinking about buying it or they want to feature it on their site.
2: Oh, they have it in the stores. They have it in the stores as And the beauty of that was that Scott, after a kind of failed startup that he had been working on, he had put like a year of his life into a more conventional kind of startup – put this thing up on Kickstarter. It's called the Lunatic. And it's a a watch band that features an iPod Nano. And it's very cool. And, you know, he just kind of did it on a lark. And lo and behold, you know, the order started coming in. And he raised a million dollars or close to uh, by people who were just saying, wow, you know, cool, sign me up. At which point he had enormous leverage. He was able to go to Apple and say, "Look, you know, I really have a track record here of people buying iPod nanos because of my watch band." So he was moving more He was moving nanos. merch. <laughs> you don't have much more leverage incremental than sales that. as exactly. they say, right? You know, if you can go to Apple and say, "Look, I'm selling your gadgets for you because they want my watch band." You have something to talk about. And he actually had a survey from, you know, Kickstarter from people saying, yes, we bought a Nano because we wanted to use it on a band. It was an independent project that he managed to get up and running on his own.
0: You describe this success as a brand new kind of American dream, one that mixes design, technology and fresh business models. And I do think that it is going to be, if it hasn't already changed the way startups start up. Right. You also talk about how there are other sites such as Etsy or quirky, um, fast-expanding online design communities such as Behance, Dribbble, Mm -hmm. Found, Forced, and they're able to give designers venues to share and to vet their creations and launch businesses without suffering through a lot of the complexities of traditional capital raising. And I wanted to know how you see these changing product innovations impacting corporate America.
2: I think it gives designers a kind of power that they've never really had before and gives them a way to have proof of concept. The the problem has always been with design because it's hard to measure, you know, you need what's to what's your say, return on investment? Yeah, what's your ROI? I mean all of these things that the uh, the MBA side of the house, you know, wants to know how can you prove that this is actually going to make a difference. What you know, what are the revenues going to be? Some of that is is hard to quantify. That's always been design's challenge in getting a seat at the in the C suite is its inability to actually quantify what it brings to the table. And I think in some ways these new business models allows you to quantify. If if Scott Wilson can go to Apple and say I have all these people who are interested in this project at a price point, by the way, that everybody told me was unreasonable. That gives you something hard to go and negotiate with. Well, I think we're at a
0: really interesting time in the world of branding in that most of the great American brands that we know and love – started very much the same way. There wasn't an internet Kickstarter, but they were all individuals that had a dream about something that probably cost more than the commodified version of it. Quaker oats cost more than the oats that you were able to uh, scoop out of a barrel. We forget that all of these brands had originators, had innovators, had people behind them. Um, There was a Kellogg. There was a Gillette, King Gillette. There was a Johnson and a Johnson and a Procter and a Gamble. And now we have people like Scott Wilson or people, um, the method guys that that have created new opportunities based on their vision of a product being slightly better designed, Mm -hmm. slightly more ergonomic, but also slightly more expensive, and it shows that people are still willing to pay for that.
2: I think they are, and if if once you've experienced a product that's well designed versus one that isn't, I mean, I have to think of Oxo kitchen. Absolutely, tools. Dan I mean, Formosa. You know, if you've ever tried using an old-fashioned potato peeler, and then you use an Oxo potato peeler, there's you know yeah, you there's no comparison. Back. You can't go back. And I think. The public is starting to understand that as better design is out there. I've often thought in the past we've blamed ourselves whenever we couldn't get something to work or, you know, the rem- you couldn't figure out the remote or whatever. I don't blame myself anymore. And that's, you know, because I have the luxury of, of understanding design a little better than sort of your ordinary person. If I'm struggling with something, I Immediately recognize that you know in many cases it's a design flaw, not just my right, idiocy. Of you. course, it's <laughs> often my idiocy too. But particularly with technology, but well, Dan but, Formosa would say that that idiocy should be somebody d- should, somebody address, should that. address that in the design. There, you know, there's an opportunity right. there in my idiocy. If I can't work my remote then somebody should take this, that thing in hand and figure it out. So, you know, there's an opportunity there every time somebody is frustrated and wants to throw the thing across the room for design to step in and, and make a difference and have a business. Do you think, though, that design
0: is still a word that scares people? I was in a meeting yesterday where somebody actually was suggesting that if you use the word design, people are going to feel that you're being elitist. And in the magazine, in the issue, you talk at length about Apple's success. And despite evidence that design impacts market share, the value and power of design does still remain misunderstood. And you go as far as stating that David Butler, who right. we just talked about, uh, Coca-Cola, managed to get traction within the organization only because he scrubbed his vocabulary of the word design and instead is talking about how his team can make stuff better. Sort of the least right. elitist term I could think of. And and so is, is this a sustainable model where we have to almost avoid using the word design in order to get something better
2: designed? David and I will talk a lot about this in the book. In fact, the first chapter really tackles this head on because he really realized within Coca-Cola that he couldn't use that word And get anybody to pay attention to him. Coca Cola. Why? Why? Because nobody knows really what it means. Is it a verb? Is it a noun? What does it mean to design? You know, you think of design and you think a guy with a black t shirt and wacky glasses and, you know, he's going to tell you about how he feels the green or something. You know, (laughs) they're scared of that there. And Coca Cola is an extremely competitive, market driven company. They don't want anything fuzzy and design sounds fuzzy and intuitive and unquantifiable so if he goes in and he talks to a guy who's you know head of I don't know the uh, head of R&D head of R&D and and he says you know I want to talk to you about design the guy's going to say like forget it I have real work to do here if he says do you want me to show you how I can make that aluminum can stay colder longer then they have something to talk about you know, if, if he tells them that he can find a, a different way, a different plan for um, making a, a fountain machine that is more sustainable so that if you're in, you know, Bangalore and you're really worried about your electricity bills and you don't want to run the thing overnight, what they tend to do is pull the plug at night so that they won't be running you know, the electricity overnight for the cooler and it means then for the first couple hours of of the business in the morning all the drinks inside the cooler are warm. Mm. Well, Coca-Cola is best served cold and so you're going to have an impact on your sales if the, you know, somebody tries it and they taste it warm and it tastes kinda gross. Can you figure out a way that you can design a cooler so that the electricity that it uses is less so that the guy the shop owner in bangalore will keep it running all night long so that it's colder in the morning those are the kinds of things that are designed but you know people think of design as like you know the cool uh, you know dynamic stripe on the side of the new fountain machine yes that's design too but design is as much about you know coming up with a really sustainable way to keep that machine operating as it is about if it 's going to be a red fountain machine or a black one,
0: because this particular issue is so highly anticipated in the design community it it never is without its controversy. People are always weighing in on the, who you 've chosen as the masters this year and there was a, a piece written on the Fast Company site on Fast Co-Design um, by Don Hancock of Firebelly and Emily Pillatin from Project H. And I'm going to read a, a little bit of what they wrote because they are unhappy with some of the choices that were made. and And I'm paraphrasing a bit here. This is the quote. What has gotten us so stirred up about this list isn't the list at all. In fact, we agree that these are great designers who have influenced us in many ways. It's what's missing that has us concerned, an element or measurement on the chart that speaks to social design, design for the greater good, design that rebuilds lives." Design that makes voting for all U.S. citizens easier and more accurate. Design for democracy, ballot, and election design. Design that treats newborn jaundice during the critical first days of life in rural hospitals in Vietnam. We mention these projects not because we feel they are names missing from the list, but because they are representative of a much larger troop of designers whose vision cannot be ignored. They are less consumer-driven and aesthetic-focused and more about humanity and our desire to use design thinking to solve real systematic problems. And I was wondering if you could comment on that a
2: little bit. Sure. I think it's a fair criticism. We probably did... Come up short whenever it came to representing designers who design for the social good on this list in our defense, this is the first year that Masters of design had an overt theme. Last year, I had tried to do this, and the idea of the theme got watered down over the course of editing the issue. but if you if you look back at that issue carefully, you'll just see that you know, design for the social good or design with an impact was really... The theme of that issue, so that really has been an ongoing focus. And if you look at the magazine, frankly, my column, you know, Big Bang Design is is about design with an impact. That is, you know, I frame it as design that's not about a chair. (laughs) Thank you, Lance. but, you know, I've written about bone drills and, and you know, innovation that can go from third world countries into the developed market and what we can learn from that. I've written about design and education. You know, I'm, I'm trying very hard to find those examples of design that really does have an impact. And so I think, you know, throughout the course of a year and certainly, frankly, on the website, we cover those stories all the time. Did we come up short in representing them in the list? Yes. And you know which is why we were happy to have Emily uh, you know weigh in so um, quickly and, too. And I quickly. mean the issues
0: out just a few days and Absolutely. this is
2: It's a fair criticism and you know we're happy to happy to address that and you know we probably did fall a little short One thing I'd like to mention about the issue as well is that the cover image is of four students from Cornell who are members of um, Design for America, which is a wonderful grassroots organization which is designed to design for the social good, growing out of um, an original chapter in Northwestern and now at nine universities across the country and evidently growing quite rapidly. So If we're giving these students our our cover real estate, it's about as big an endorsement as we could possibly give them.
0: When I first asked you to be on the show, uh, you wrote back to me and said that you were looking forward to talking because you were just at the White House. And uh, you were at the White House for the National Design Awards, and you had some interesting fodder there. (laughs) And I held myself back from writing, what? Because I thought it would be fun to talk about on the air. So what interesting fodder did you find at the White House? Well,
2: I mean, it's number one, it's just a trip. And it's, it's, it's great to see all of these you know, big name, high impact designers cavorting in the halls of the White House, like mugging in front of portraits of their favorite presidents, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, see Matthew they, Carter, cavorting. Yeah, cavorting in front of <laughs> Millard Fillmore. You know, it's it's fantastic. And I always go with my camera and, you know, this is second year I've gone and, you know, take pictures of them all posing in front of their favorite presidents. So far, nobody has chosen Richard Nixon. But someone made a comment to me uh, while we were there about the fact that, you know, we were in this lovely room, but it was an East Wing room, and... You know, it was chaired by Michelle Obama, who's fantastic and makes all these designers earn their lunch by appearing at a teen design fair in the morning. They, you know, each of them has to show up, sit at a table. They, you know, bus in kids from the D.C. schools who have expressed interest in being designers. And these kids make the rounds of all these designers. So, you know, watching them, you know, listen to Matthew Carter talk about font design was, you know, blew the – lit off your head. I mean, kids had no idea. Last year, everybody, yeah, it really was because they had no idea that fonts could be designed. Who knew? So that was really wonderful. But after doing this issue, I could only wish that the conversation about design could have moved from the East Wing to the West Wing, because I think they desperately need us over there. Oh, yes. And, you know, the WPA was a design project, wasn't it? I mean, really, when you think back on it... and NASA. I'm not, NASA. I mean, you know, all of those things are, are really design projects. Other countries have design councils that are intended to help business understand the potential of design. In the United States, you know, we have well-meaning organizations... AIGA, IDSA, APDF, DMI, all the acronyms, they're all great, you know, but there's no governmental body that is there to promote that design conversation at a higher level and bring everybody together and say, okay, what can we do with this? This has the potential to unleash value and create jobs and, you know, be an economic driver for this country. You know, where is that conversation? Well, the conversation is in the October 2011 issue of Fast Company. You know, we tried to get it in there. We tried to sneak in as best we could. You know, we thought about coming down to the White House with a bunch of boxes and standing there and giving out copies of the magazine. And we thought hmm, Boxes, bringing them to the gates of the White House—probably not a good idea if we actually want to be able to get in there for lunch instead of ending up in jail. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a good story, though. It would have been a good story, but I wasn't willing to, you know, risk my uh, lobster salad for that. Well, Linda, thank you so much for being
0: such a such a design advocate. Well, my and, pleasure. Uh, thank you for a really terrific issue.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You can read articles
0: and blog posts by Linda Tischler at fastcodesign.com, and her monthly column runs in Fast Company magazine. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.
0: You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down.